Well, how much have we got left in the tank? How much longer do you think you can go? I remember when I got my first car, I did what my dad used to always do. Whenever I filled up with fuel, I, I wrote down how far I'd travelled on that tank and how much fuel I'd used so I could know what fuel economy I was getting. And with that information, I worked out how far I could go on a completely full tank of petrol. And I could go a fair way because my car was a nice little Corolla, pretty fuel efficient. Now, this was back in the days before Catherine and I were even engaged. So I was still pretty keen to impress her. I'm still trying. I was teaching in the Riverina town of Leeton. Catherine was still studying in Sydney. Uh, We'd both been invited to a birthday party in Wollongong. So straight after school on that Friday, I drove all the way to Wollongong, six hours, no stops. Next day, I was taking Catherine up to the central coast to see my parents. Still a fair bit more driving, but see, I'd done my calculations. Okay, I knew I could make it without needing any more fuel. And so with my girlfriend in the front seat of my car, you can imagine my disappointment when we didn't even make it out of Sydney and we're stranded on the side of the road. Sometimes we don't know how much we've got left in the tank. Now look, on a more serious note, I want to ask you, do you have a sense of how much you've got left in the tank of life? Now, you never know what's going to happen, but even if we work on averages, the average life expectancy of Australians is 84 if you're female, 80 if you're male. I'm 42. That means more than half my life is over. If my life was a football game, I've already been in the sheds for the half-time pep talk from the coach, I've had my oranges, and I'm back out on the field with a full-time siren looming. And I'm feeling more tired in the second half because I've already played the first. Now, I don't know if I'll get subbed off before full-time. Maybe I won't get to play the full 80 years. Or maybe my game will go into extra time. But if it does, it'll only be short maybe five or ten extra, 15 at the outside. But I'll be on borrowed time with a game to be called at any moment. Friends, the stark reality of our lives is that we are all going to die. We hold on to life, we want to squeeze what we can out of it, and we put off thinking about death. Even when we go to a funeral, it's rare that we get to see the dead body. And so even though I'm 42, the world will tell me that my best years are in front of me. You know, I'm still young. But the cold reality is that in all likelihood, I am already more than halfway to my grave. What stage are you at? Life's so fleeting and fragile, and the question is, what comes next? After the grave, which we're all marching towards, then what? Well, God wants us to be crystal clear about what comes next after we die. He wants us to be under no illusion. With great love and concern, God lays it all out for us in black and white. Come to the end of our verses that we're looking at this morning. The second last verse, Hebrews 9 and verse 27. Look at it there, verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's what comes after we die, the judgment of God. He'll scrutinise our lives. God will put us under his microscope. And even we already know what he'll find. And it's not going to be pretty, is it? 
If you just think back over your last 24 hours, your last week, the past year, and think of the things that you regret about yourself. I mean, if we can find fault with ourselves, what about the God who made us? The judgment of God is a frightening prospect. But thankfully, that's not God's final word on the matter. This section that we're looking at in Hebrews this morning is all about how Jesus can give us eternal life after we die. Today is all about the good news of Jesus being able to save us from God's judgment. And so despite the fact that we're all going to die, and despite the fact that after we die we'll all be judged by God, we can be sure of having eternal life. Now there's obstacles to us receiving eternal life. It's not a given. There's things that need to be overcome if we're going to be able to live with God forever. We've already briefly touched on our own failings, our sin. And what our verses are all about this morning, how they work, is how Jesus overcomes three obstacles for us so that we can be saved and live with God forever. So let's have a look. Verse 15 Right at the the top of the page there, back up to verse 15, we're told from the front that Jesus has eternal life on offer. Okay, look at there, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Okay, this is swinging on the back of what we looked at uh, here at church two weeks ago. Uh, Hopefully you can remember that. Uh, Two weeks ago we saw that Jesus is the one who has brought in God's new covenant, uh, a new arrangement of how God and his people have been brought together. But the new information we're given here from verse 15 is that the benefits of Jesus bringing in the new covenant are eternal. Christ mediates this new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance and what we get from the second half of verse 15 right through to the end of the chapter is three obstacles Jesus has overcome to make this eternal inheritance possible and the first obstacle Jesus overcomes is the judgment of the first covenant so look at verse 15 again for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The first covenant spoken of there is the covenant that God had with Israel back in the Old Testament. Now a covenant, remember, is just, it's like a contract with consequences if you fail to keep your end of it. So, you know, you sign a rental agreement and you're stating that you will pay this certain amount of money each week. And that you'll keep the place in reasonable order. And if you don't, then you'll be booted out and lose your bond. That's a covenant of sorts. You know, a contract binding two parties together. Consequences if you don't keep your end. Well, God had a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. And the consequence for breaking this covenant was death. It's pretty serious, isn't it? Making a covenant with God is clearly bigger bickies than when you sign a rental agreement. And sadly for Israel in the Old Testament, they repeatedly broke their covenant with God and so they deserved to die. Their sin meant death, which disqualified them from being able to share in God's eternal inheritance. 
But here's the point of verse 15. The Israelites deserve to die for breaking the covenant, but Jesus has come and died that death for them. On the cross, he took their place, paid their punishment, so that now they can share in God's eternal inheritance. Now, in verses 16 to 20, the writer goes on to explain in detail about the old covenants that God had with Israel and how death was the penalty for breaking them. I'm going to leave you to read those verses for yourselves because in verse 21, the writer moves on to an obstacle that we need taken care of for us. And that is, if we sinners are going to enter into heaven to be with God, then heaven is going to need to be readied in preparation for our arrival. The language that the writer uses is that heaven needs to be purified before we can go in. It's a bit of a weird idea, I know. And to help us know what he's getting at, the author takes us back to what God used to do with Israel back in the Old Testament. Because what God did with Israel was a copy of what God does with us in Jesus. It illustrates what Jesus has done for us. And so the writer starts talking about Moses sprinkling blood on the tabernacle and everything in it to purify it all. Now again, hopefully from two weeks ago, you can remember what the tabernacle is. It's a dirty, great big tent. It was God's house where God lived among the Israelites. And so the tabernacle was where God and his people symbolically came together, which is why everything in the tabernacle and everything associated with it had to be purified. If, if anything was going to be used to bring God and his people together, it had to be cleansed. God's house needed to be prepared for sinful guests. So verse 21. Look at it there, verse 21. In the same way, he, that's Moses, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. See, back in the Old Testament, everything in the tabernacle had to be cleansed, had to be purified because it was all going to be used in the coming together of the holy God and a sinful people. The people's sins stained everything and so everything needed to be purified. It's a bit like if you're going to have a meal with the queen. Now you wouldn't, if you're going to have a meal with the queen, you wouldn't set the table with last night's dirty dishwashers that are still in the dishwasher. Now you'd grab the special clean plates from the top of the cupboard that you never use until someone like the queen comes along. Now, if that's what you would do if you were going to have dinner with the queen, how much more so with God? Because when it came to God and the people, it wasn't last night's dinner that made things dirty. It was the people's sin. And so everything needed to be purified to prepare God's house for sinful Israel to come in. Okay, now all of this is just an illustration. It's just a copy of the heavenly reality, just a a model, a copy of what would really happen in heaven. And if the copies of the heavenly things, the tabernacle, If they needed to be purified with animal sacrifices, then the heavenly things themselves, well, they'll need to be purified with a better sacrifice. Because in heaven, we're not dealing with a mere symbol of God's house. We're talking about going into God's actual house, into his actual presence. And somehow, Christ's sacrifice of himself has purified the heavenly things so that we can actually come to God. Verse 23. 
it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the tabernacle, it was necessary for them to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. And look, friends, this is a bit weird. I know Christ sacrificed, purifying the heavenly things. And it's a little bit hard to make sense of. But if we take our cue from the copies of the heavenly things that the writers just told us about, I think what he's saying is simply this. If we sinners are going to enter into heaven itself, then just like the tabernacle needed to be purified from the people's sin, heaven needed to be purified as well. And by his sacrifice of himself for our sins, Christ has done that. That by his death in our place for us, in some sense, God has prepared himself and his home to receive us into his house, into heaven itself. Which makes for a very certain future with God, doesn't it? I mean, when heaven itself has been purified in preparation for your arrival, you know you're on the A-list. Okay, there's no doubt about whether or not you can come in. Eternal life, it is possible because of Christ. And the last obstacle that Jesus needs to overcome for us if we're to have eternal life, that last obstacle is our sin. Because as we thought about briefly at the start, we've all got it. We're all guilty of ignoring God, defying God, the one who made us, the one who owns us. We're all stained by our sin and our sin disqualifies us from having any share in eternal life with God. So, you know, like using drugs disqualifies you from competing in the Olympics. Like being under 18 disqualifies you from being allowed to purchase alcohol. Our sin means we're disqualified from sharing in God's eternal inheritance. And so if we're going to be allowed to share in eternal life, Jesus, he is going to have to set our sins aside. He's going to have to remove them once and for all, which is exactly what he does. Now, to illustrate this, the writer again refers back to what the, the way God did things with the Israelites back in the Old Testament. Because, again, it was all a model of how Jesus would do things for us. So in the Old Testament, you had the high priest and he would enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle every year. We thought about this two weeks ago. And he did that to symbolically deal with the people's sin. And so every year, the high priest would go into the most holy place with the blood of animals And he'd have to do it every single year because every year there'd be more sins to have to deal with. Okay, but Christ is different. He didn't sacrifice animals. He sacrificed himself. And he didn't do it year after year, but only once. Because by his sacrifice, Christ has done away with sin once and for all. Verse 25, look at it there, verse 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ's 
sacrifice of himself does away with sin. Soak those words in. His sacrifice of himself does away with sin. He's taken our place in his death and so our sins have been set aside. It's like an enemy piece on a board game. We've got some board games at home where everyone who's playing is on the same team. So it's, it's like everybody against the game. And in this particular game, The Legend of Andor, there's, there's this, a whole bunch of bad guys. They're really mean looking. And you do battle against them and you're rolling these dice. And when you defeat one, you take that piece off the board, you set it aside. That guy, he's now gone for good. He can't come back into the game. It's a little bit like that with what Christ has done with our sin. By his sacrifice for us, he has set our sins aside. They are gone for good. He's removed them, done away with them, and once and for all, which means they can't come back to bite us. Our sins can't somehow resurrect themselves and so that they need to be dealt with again because Christ has removed them and he's removed them for good, which means when we die... We don't have to bear the burden of our sin before God. Verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. We're destined to die once and be judged for our sins, but Christ was sacrificed once to take away our sins. And so when we die and face the judgment of God, with our sins having already been removed, got nothing to worry about. When we face the judgment of God, instead of having to face his anger, those who know Christ, they will be saved. Verse 28, And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus is coming back. He was sacrificed once to remove sin, which means he can now forgive us of all our sins. He was then raised from the dead to live forever, which means he can give us eternal life. He has overcome all the obstacles to us sharing in God's eternal inheritance. And so he will come to earth again to save all those who are his, to save all who are waiting for him. At the start, I reminded us that the cold reality of our lives is that we will all die. But God's good news this morning is that he breaks into our destiny so that we can be saved because of Christ, because of his death in our place. For our sins, we can have eternal life. And so he's coming again to save all those who are waiting for him. So this morning, I have to ask you, are you waiting for him? Do you know him that you would even think about waiting for him? I mean, if I said to you that uh, Rob Sharp is coming to Dubbo this week, would that mean anything to you? I mean, would you spend this week counting down the days until Rob came? I would. Because Rob's one of my best friends 
from my college days. But you wouldn't be waiting for Rob because you don't even know him. Are you waiting for Jesus? Do you even know him? You might have heard a lot about Jesus over the years. You know, you might have been coming to church for decades. But in all honesty, you don't know the Lord Jesus. Well, maybe you've only just started coming along to church. You know, and this is all a bit new. Maybe you've been hearing about Christ for a little bit, but for the first time, it's, it's starting to make sense. But look, it doesn't matter how long you've been around the news of Christ, because I'm asking you right now, here, today, do you know him? Have you spoken to him and admitted your sin? Have you admitted to him you don't deserve eternal life? Have you acknowledged to him that he died for your sin and that because of his death, he can remove your sins once and for all? And so have you asked him personally to forgive you, to give you eternal life so that when he comes again, He'll come to save you. Do you need to do this? Well, how about we do it together? And we'll do it right now. I'm going to pray to God. And I'm going to say the prayer one line at a time because I'll give you some space after each line so that you can repeat these words in your own mind and you can say them yourself to God. Let's pray. Lord God, I admit to you that I'm guilty of sin. I've ignored and defied you. I don't deserve eternal life. But I know that Christ died for sins. To remove them once and for all. So because of Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive me. And to give me eternal life. Help me to live for you now. waiting for Jesus until he comes again. Amen. Friends, if you've prayed that kind of prayer for the very first time just now, then know this for sure. You are forgiven. Your sins have been done away with. And when Jesus comes again, you will be saved. And you now have the privilege of waiting for Jesus until he comes again.